concluding our series on reclaiming the ground of discipleship. And this will not be the conclusion of you hearing these three elements, three elements that we've tried to just simplify and synthesize, if you will, discipleship into the category of understanding that every Christian, every Christian is called to be a disciple. And that's a great word, but if it's a word that lacks parameters, it's kind of a meaningless word. And we, we've learned, week number one was, was learning that being a disciple begins, I'm going to use three D's here, discipleship starts with the three D words here, um, begins with denying yourself. And if, if at any moment Christianity is not about denying me, then there is an idolatrous component in Christianity that ultimately makes it not work. And God in his grace knows that his purpose is, will flourish in our lives as we are reduced and he is increased. So the principle of denying myself, my agenda, my interests, my goals, my glory is always going to be an issue for me fulfilling the call of being a disciple. The second was the discipline of learning. That being a disciple, the very word disciple comes from the word to be a learner. So you and I will never, never travel far as disciples if we do not have a lifestyle of learning. If we're not incorporating truth into our lives. If we are not, in this day and age, interrupting the busy challenges of information overload that exists all around us to make sure the right information is being entertained in our minds, renewing our minds, and preparing us for the call of our lives. Well, today I want to install the last D, and that would be duplication. <clears throat> when the Bible calls us to be disciples, it actually co-calls us to be disciple-makers. So no disciple is merely a disciple. Every disciple is a disciple-maker. So to be a disciple is to be a disciple-maker. It is to be duplicating the gospel, duplicating the truth that we have received, the life that we've received, the revelation that we've received, the benefit that we've received. It is to be duplicating that into others and to live our lives always as that being the governing agenda for who we are. Look at this thought with me from Paul Tripp. <clears throat> In a recent book, he just wrote a quest for more. He says, It is a classic scene in Western culture. She stands before the microphone, beautiful and poised, a finalist in the Miss America contest. The hosts ask her what she would like to accomplish during her reign, and she says, I would like to create world peace, solve world hunger, and liberate all the caged parakeets in the entire world. <laughs> We've all heard it a hundred times. It has been the fodder for many late-night stand-up comedy routines. Yet, for all our cynical smiles and sarcastic comments in the face of the contestants' grandiosity, there is something deeply and uniquely human about what she has said. There is woven inside each of us a desire for something more, a craving to be part of something bigger, greater, and more profound than our relatively meaningless day-by-day -day existence. Maybe that's why a human being would ever want to climb Mount Everest, traverse the oceans in an all-too-small sailboat, or attempt any feat not yet accomplished by a fellow human. Perhaps that's why we get hooked on politics, sports, or a myriad of causes that give us something to fight for. We simply weren't constructed to live only for ourselves. We were placed on earth 
to be part of something bigger than the narrow borders of our own survival and our own little definition of happiness. That's a wonderfully insightful comment. You know, when I look out at the world, you know, kind of peer through the curtains of my house and look at the world, it's a strange combination of people who are bored and busy all at the same time. Just, you know, bored. Whatever it is that they have in their life, they're bored with it. They want something else. They want something more. And they're busy as all get out trying to find it. And it's amazing what will animate people, what will kind of get them jazzed up in their life. I mean, we remember the post-Katrina world that we lived in and just what a big thing the New Orleans Saints were, right? You know, and they had a good season. And, you know, and people identified with that. How many of you guys are Hornets fans? There should be more. I'm sorry. There should be more. More hands should be raised. We need an altar call this morning. Um, you should be a Hornets fan. If you're not, you should be. I'm a Hornets fan. And every time I get a chance to watch, I, I watch. Uh, they're incredible. Um, but, you know, there's something about fans, sports fans in particular, that can get, you know, kind of rabidly attached to whatever's going on. I mean, it, it, it's the talk of their life. It's, it's what they're about. And, you know, could it be because there's something in us that, that wants a big adventure going on? And it's like our own little lives just don't have enough content to it to generate that kind of adventure. So we adopt a sports team or talk politics and argue points in those arenas or whatever it is that we kind of go after. Put in your outline, it seems like being a Christian isn't the thing for many Christians, but rather a thing that they take along with them on their quest to find the thing. I'd let you debate that in your covenant groups this week, to think. Isn't that the case? I mean, you know, I came to Christ at some point in my life. I'm a Christian, got a relationship with God, but man, if I could just win American Idol. Oh, you know, it's like we're, we're watching that and we're putting ourselves there and I don't know, maybe thinking you could sing along with them or whatever it is that you do when you watch the show. You know, or sports teams or, you know, yeah, I'm a Christian, but if I could just make more money, you know, I mean, when you, when you get around us and the things that we're passionate about, you know, for many Christians, God really isn't the object of our passion. It's kind of like we kind of put him in our pocket and we're going to take him with us. And understand, we need him because we know without him we all go to hell at the end of the story. Uh, we need him because we know stuff breaks. I could get a flat tire going down the highway of life. I, you know, I'll need God to repair some issues in my life. But basically, God is, I've got God in my life on my way to something else, if that makes sense. And I think that's way too true. Of too many Christians. I think, we're, I think we're bored. I mean, I know it's kind of a weird thing to say. It's God of the universe, but I'm bored with him. I'm looking for something else to do. Why, why do we get so unnamed? Why do we love the movies? Why don't you just love a movie, you know? Just for a moment, you can just get into the, to the scene and the drama and the suspense and what's going to happen in this... You know, this storyline that's taking place and these superhuman feats that are going on and, and everybody having a great answer. Don't you love that in movies? 
you know, just great lines in movies. Some situation devolves and a person makes a comment and somebody comes back with like, oh, man, was that the comeback of all comebacks? Why don't I think like, I wish I could respond that way. You know, it's like we just want something greater and more. Of course, now remember, there was a script writer who actually edited 68 times before he fed that actor who was faking that response into the movie. So don't get too enamored. But we love the movies. It's like we love adventure. We want to be a part of something that's adventurous and happening. Well, might it be that we are? Might it be that we're living at the doorstep of the greatest adventure and drama in human history and we all have a part in it? And we just happen to be looking at the wrong stuff. I mean, listen, I'm going to watch the Hornets game tonight unless something, some crisis happens at 6 o'clock. So I'm going to be watching the Hornets game. But I sure hope that I didn't Look forward to the Hornets game to rescue me from my miserable week. You know? You know I'm looking for an event here. You know, I've got a vacation planned. And oh, if I could just get to the vacation, cross the line, and then drive off into something. It's like, where is the sense of adventure right now? Right now. What am I giving myself to? What am I involved in that is an adventure? It is an unfolding movie plot. That, that I am, I am Jason Bourne. I am. I, I'm not. I'm, I realize Matt's really Jason Bourne. But um, I'd like to be Jason Bourne. Look in your outline there. 2 Timothy chapter 4. You section there under clarifying purpose statements in Scripture. I am grateful. I'm grateful that God over and over and over and over and over and over again floods the word of God with purpose statements, with statements that come and advertise to us an explanation as to why, why will you be given the next breath in your life? Why, why is that coming? Why are you the way you are? Why do you live when you do? I'm grateful for how God clarifies that. And here's a very helpful one from the Apostle Paul. End of his life, all the adventure that he has lived, all that he's been a part of, and this is how he's concluding some thought in 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's the last letter he's going to write. This is closing thoughts from his life. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Huh. You fought the good fight. What, what, what fight was that, Paul? What, what were you what were you fighting for? You you completed the race? Okay. Paul, what race were you running in? What were you striving for? What were you after? What were you contending for? What did you get up every day to face with an attitude of fight for something? Fight for it. Have an attitude. Go after it. Be aggressive. There's a course. I mean when you run a race. To get to the finish line and to say I'm arriving at the finish line means you, you have to stay on the course. You just can't depart, wander off into the countryside. You have to stay on course. He had a course in his life. He got up in the morning and he lived his life towards... What, what was that? You know, question for us. What, what are you fighting for? Fighting for? You know, you, know, you know the difference between fighting right, and just kind of going with the flow? Right, there's a lot of things in your life you just kind of, oh, just let them happen that way. You know. Oh, no, I'm all right with that. You know, want whipped cream on that? Uh, whatever. You got it? Yeah, okay. 
That's not a fight. But there are some things you are fighting for. You exert energy. You occupy mental space. You think. You worry. What is that for you? Teenagers? What are you, what are you fighting for? You get up and you are affected and you are going to expend energy and thought and plans and schemes. What is that that you're fighting for? Husbands, wives, what are you fighting for? What are you fighting about? It might be a good thing to figure out what you're fighting for. What are you fighting about? Husbands and wives. Right, you know, probably I'm fighting for this little piece of territory right here. I have built bunkers, there are tanks, there's weaponry, and I am protecting my interest. And wife, relative, friend, if you look like you're going to threaten my interest right here, I'm going to fight. And you, you think for a moment. Obviously, I'm, all I'm saying this is, is against the backdrop of whatever it was that Paul fought for. He got up in the morning and fought for something. Um, it probably was not some of the things that we are so animated and worried and concerned and have been programmed to fight our lives for. And I think as a result, we are, we are missing out on the adventure of a lifetime. The adventure that faith was supposed to be as it came into our lives and rewired us to experience a purpose much bigger than our small little space that we stand in. Now, I want to do this. I'm going to give you a little bit of a panoramic view here. So turn to Isaiah 43 with me for a moment. I'm not quite sure why the Lord directed me to Isaiah 43, because these, you can find this sort of purpose statement all throughout Scripture. But I think Isaiah is an inter- interesting place. You know, Isaiah is one of the prophets in the Old Testament. Um, just to give you a quick geography of the Old Testament. You have 17 books of history, you have five books of, pro- of poetry. Then you have 17 books of prophecy. Isaiah would be one of those books. He would be prophesying, even though his historical setting is somewhere found in the historical books. But he's prophesying, and he's, he's been given these revelations, and as you read through a prophetic book like these, they're, they're like little stories and revelations that come to him in packages. And he, and he puts them together, one after another. He doesn't always put them in chronological order. So when you're reading sometimes the prophets, you have to realize, okay, this didn't necessarily happen after that, after that, after that, after that. They're kind of gathered together because he was making a point here. And it's interesting, in this section, he has prophesied, see, he is prophesying about 740 B.C., so he's kind of right in the middle of our timeline here. You've you got to go back to the year 2000 when Abraham is chosen and the nation, the national element of God comes in, and then we're, we're still a good 740 years away from Christ being born. So here we are as God's about to make a purpose statement yet again for his people. Why, why do you people exist? You know, you're my people, but why do you even exist? What's the point of your life? And if you can't answer that question, then, then you have a hard time with, what am I fighting for? What's the finish line of the race that I'm running, that I'm trying to cross the line? Well, listen to how... Isaiah is given a prophetic insight into the people of God in their purpose. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord who created you. That, that but now is almost, there's a, there's a bit of a transitional tone here. Because for 39 chapters, Isaiah has been dooming and glooming them to death. All the nations are going to come under judgment. In the beginning, Israel, the people of God, they're under judgment. 
he is, he is prophesying the judgment that uh, the Assyrian and uh, Babylonian captivities are coming, that the rebelliousness of the people of God have brought the discipline of God into their world. And not only Israel, but all the nations are going to be judged by God as well. So there's this doom and gloom up to about chapter 40. And then all of a sudden, Isaiah begins to prophesy about the redemptive purpose of God. And see, this is the great thing about being a child of God, is that you and I are caught up in that. And it's very humbling when you read this, because you realize that there are others in the world who are caught up in the judgment of God. And there's no reason why that's not us. Jeff talked about being being a humble people. You read these verses. I'm going to highlight something for you just so you can see it when you read the Bible. It's not going to be a comfortable thing for you to see, but it is an important thing to see. Verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel. Those are, those are design words. Hold on to those, right? They're design words. God formed you. He created you. That's a purpose. God had something in mind when He formed and made you the way you are. Fear not, For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Those are a mouthful of theology right there. Don't read past them too quickly, because... At some point, you're going to try and figure out why God's going to be kind to you tomorrow. At some point, you're going to wonder whether he will be. And then you're going to ask the question, why would he be? And if you're in touch with your own sin, you'll really be scratching your head as to, he probably wouldn't be. And you might have really good ground to say that if you were an Egyptian or Cush or Seba. See, everybody, you know, Prince of Egypt... Ten Commandments, whatever, whatever story. If you're a kid, you've watched the cartoon. If you're older, you've watched Cecil B. DeMille's. Everybody kind of roots in that thing. You know, kind of like, oh, go get him, Moses. Yeah, look at what God's doing. There's a good thing going on here. You know, what people don't wrestle with, though, is God is choosing to rescue one set of sinners from another set of sinners. You kind of let that one slip by, huh? See, somehow we, we think God's doing what he's doing because those Egyptians, man, are they nasty people. They deserve ten plagues. Give them eleven if you got an extra one. Do you remember where Israel comes from? Do you remember Abraham was an idol worshiper when God reached out to him? Do you remember how often God had to contend with the idols that they still took with them from the land from which Abraham came? It's very likely that they had adopted. How long did it take them to figure out how to make a golden calf at the foot of the mountain? A long time. Wow, that's that's pretty quick craftsmanship. Um, Where'd that idea come from? Because they were sinful people. And Egypt was sinful people. Yet God chooses to say, I give them as ransom for you. Wow. 
So you want to try and figure out why God will be merciful to you tomorrow? It's right here in this verse. Because you are precious in my eyes. Not, not because you're so great, but because God has chosen to set his love on you. Now listen, listen to this call, verse 5. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That you see this call here? There is a summons taking place. To the east and the west and the north and the south, God is calling for the earth to yield to him his own. Out of a fallen humanity, out of 39 chapters in Isaiah of the prophecy of judgment against a world that's done it its own way, gone astray and rebelled against God and chose to have God in a category that God did not tell them to put him in. God is now intending to redeem man out of that fallen state from the east and the west and the north and the south. And he's going to summon them and he's going to call the earth to give up my own and bring them to me. Look in Isaiah 49. Verse 1. Still same section. Still God explaining his redemptive purpose. He says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. This is Israel. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. Design. God designed Israel a certain way. Like an arrow. He made them with a purpose to be able to, to accomplish certain things in his hand. Like a sharp sword. Now, you know, I, I believe that's true of the nation of Israel. I believe it becomes true of each one of us. I believe in God's redemptive purpose that we're going to see this unfold. Each one of us is, is so tall, can speak a certain way, has a certain mindset, relates to people, has certain gifts and abilities, lives in a certain location at a certain time, all because we are handcrafted by God. I formed you. For my own glory. I have a purpose in how I've made you, where I've made you, and what I'm doing with you. Verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Well, how's God going to do that? Verse 1. Four, four, I'm sorry, verse 4. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says... He who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Why? To bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my strength has become my and my God has become my strength. He says it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Why does God have a people upon earth? Remember, you can, this, this is not a new thought. This, this goes back to Abraham. Abraham was going to be God's chosen 
person and the lineage of him would be a chosen lineage through whom the nations would be blessed. And here God is spelling out, I'm going to call to the east and to the west and to the north and the south. How is God going to call, though, through my servants who is going to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth? See, welcome to the program already in progress. When we read in Isaiah and we pick it up in the New Testament and we pick it up in our life today, there is the greatest human drama of all time is occurring right underneath our nose. The God of glory is redeeming out of the clutches and the powerful clutches of sin and death and the reign of sin in human hearts. God is redeeming hearts to himself and he's calling the earth and all who are in it to release them from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. That's what God's doing. That's what God's redemptive people have always been called to do. God is doing something that we, I put in your eye, we have been designed and appointed to accomplish. We have been designed and appointed to accomplish this. Right, and here's a few just helpful qualifying verses again. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? In order that you might show forth the praises of him who's called you out of the darkness and into his light. Purpose statement for our lives. When I get up tomorrow morning and I fight for something, am I fighting for the excellencies of the glory of God to be seen in my life? See, the beholding of the glory of God through my life, I'll say this kind of beat you to the punch here in these verses, that beholding it is the means through which the voice of God calls out to the east and the west and the north and the south. It's not a loudspeaker in heaven. Sometimes we get weird about the purpose of God and how he goes about fulfilling them. So that is no, he just stands in heaven and yells real loud or does skywriting. His glory is to be seen here in me as a redeemed person transformed by the Holy Spirit and proclaiming the message of who God is in the gospel to the east and the west and the north and the south. John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. It should remain. Back in verse 8 it says, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my what? Disciples. The proof of discipleship is the bearing of fruit. It is the duplication of our lives. How do you know that someone really is a disciple of Christ? Well, the gospel is being duplicated out of their life into others' lives. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples. And do you understand? This is not a new idea. The Great Commission is not a new commission. It's the same commission. It is when God chose to have a people all the way back to Abraham, it was for this purpose that he might display his glory, have a people upon whom he would set his affections, and would bless them, and they would be the objects of his mercy, and they would proclaim that. They would testify of that. They would be God's servants to proclaim throughout the earth of the redemption of God. And Isaiah prophesies that. Jesus speaks of it. And it's clearly throughout the entire New Testament. Now, what I want us to do today is I want us to take a quick look at the Apostle Paul's race. He says he ran a race. Uh, Turn to Acts chapter 26. We're going to look at a passage that describes the beginning of the race 
And then when it describes the end, Paul is, is running a race. If you remember the Apostle Paul, he would have been a religious man. He's standing in chapter 26 before King Agrippa, and he's having to explain himself as to why riots are following him around, why the people are so against him, and, and, and what has happened in his life that's brought about these events. And so he begins to explain to Agrippa. Look in verse 4. He says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest part of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. He was a very, very religious man. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God our fathers. Skip down to verse 9. I myself was convinced that I, I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Isn't that interesting? There's a guy who was a very religious man. He was a devout Jew. But yet his posture was to oppose Jesus Christ. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. There's a purpose statement again in the scriptures. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. In me. And I just want to highlight a couple of points here that I put in your outline about this. This is the starting block for Paul. Now, Acts chapter 26 is him telling the story of, of what happened many years previous to this point. But this is Paul's starting block. The Son of God calling him and commissioning him. This is, this is Paul's great commission, the same one all of us are under. Paul's great commission to get out of the blocks and into the race. You know, when you hear, and he hears this summons from God, put in your outline there, it says, becoming a disciple redefined Paul's life. When Paul submits his resume, here's who I was, Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was, I was moving along. I was a mover and shaker amidst the, the power brokers of Jerusalem. I was commissioned by the high priest. I mean, I, I am up there. He meets Jesus Christ and all of his ambitions, 
all of his understanding about what matters in life gets flipped upside down. And his whole life gets redefined. And he's in touch with things in his life that were ambitions for him that are now wrong. I shouldn't be pursuing that. And new ambitions that have been awakened in his life, and he's going to point his life towards those things, and he's going to live wholeheartedly toward them. Listen, this, this is a man who puts on display for us conversion. Biblical conversion. Man, I've mean, I got to ask this question today. Where are those conversions today? Where are people who meet Christ and their whole life gets redefined? I, I now must reconsider who I am, what I'm about, the purpose statement for my life. What are my goals? What am I trying to achieve? <clears throat> I heard a um, <clears throat> radio advertisement recently that was promoting an evangelistic event. And it touted that the evangelistic event had produced 50,000 decisions for Christ in the city of New Orleans. Oh, wow. 50,000 decisions for Christ. I just started to do a little bit of math. Hmm. Well, if there have been 50,000 people who have been converted to Christ, let's just say that they just got involved with 100 churches. 100 churches. Pretty good number. That would be what? About 500 people? In each church? Is that right? To do the math right? 500 people in each church. No. Bill, do the math for me. Bill always checks my math. Bill, you don't trust me, do you? (laughs) 100 churches. That would be 500,000. All y'all need to sit down, okay? You're all disqualified. 50,000 conversions. Yeah, see, y'all don't listen. That's the problem. It's not that you can't add and subtract. It's that you don't listen. All right. I understand. Um, 500 people got converted. Did, did any of them manage to, per church, didn't they manage to show up in church? I, I mean, I'm thinking I might have noticed that. That would double our attendance. I mean, I'm thinking that would be a chunk of folks if they showed up here. Churches would be busting out of the buildings all over the place. What, you know, what kind of conversions are we expecting today? People make a decision for Christ and you don't ever see them again. Now, it doesn't seem to be the case in the Apostle Paul. When he experiences Christ and he comes to a place of conversion, his whole life gets redefined. He is not the same person anymore. There's a new agenda in his life. He doesn't just keep doing the same thing. He re-examines and calls into question. Should I, should I be pursuing that? Is there a new course for me to run on? There's a new adventure that lays hold of this man's life. And he begins to run a race. That's what conversion should do in our lives. It should change the race for us. He uses words in here. This conversion brought about an appointment. I'm going to appoint you as a servant and a witness. A servant and a witness. What characterizes conversion for a Christian is becoming a servant. I mean, this is, this is a rich word for Paul. This is not a posture for a man to argue with God. This is a posture for a man to simply obey God. He comes to Christ understanding the agenda for his next breath is to obey God who has become his master. I no longer have freedom and recourse that are outside of the lordship of Christ. I'm appointing you a servant and a witness. 
Another word that I think has been misplaced in biblical Christianity. A witness in that setting was one who was going to legally testify of that which they they had actually been a party to. They had seen something they were going to be called to tell what they had seen. I'm appointing you, Paul, as a servant. Obey me no matter where I send you. And as a witness, everywhere you go, you will tell them what you've seen in me and what I will show you. That's a job description for every Christian. And that became a difficult job description. After the first century, that word witness began to take on new meanings. It's it's a word today that we have the word martyr. It didn't always mean what it means to us now. But it got birthed out of people who told their story and told their story and it cost them their life. And they told their story and they told their story and it cost them their life. And soon martyr began to mean losing your life at the expense of your story. But Paul was a servant. If it cost him his life, he was going to be a witness. And being a witness was such a big task that we almost have this pause in the beginning of the book of Acts. Wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. For you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and the uttermost parts of the earth. The power of God was going to need to come into a Christian's life in such a profound way so that a witness could actually be given, even if it costs us our lives. Look at this aspect of, of calling. Verse 16. He was to be appointed as a witness to the things in which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Paul lived his life. This is, again, good lessons for us in being disciples. Paul lived his life like an arrow shot at people. Particular people. Paul was on a mission. He had defined for him, those are the people that I'm to reach. And he lived his life that way. Now, I want to ask us, because I think some of these are foreign thoughts for us. Am I living my life toward a defined people? That's, that's kind of an easy pastoral question to answer. But for each of us, there are, there are people that God has directed you toward. You are, you are like an arrow shot at something. I am sending you, God says about Paul. I'm sending you. Who is God sending you to? Do we make decisions today out of the context of I am sent to something? If somebody else had bumped into Paul and said, Paul, I got a great offer for you. There's this great island over here. I want you to come check it out. This great land of the people over there are excellent. There's a ministry here. You're going to love it. Paul would have first have had to overcome the fact that God had sent him to a people. He'd had to say, no, I'm not sent there. I'm sent here. And he lived his life. He got up and he fought and he ran a race because he was living his life toward a people that God had defined for him to be part of. See, that's, that's the kind of insight from Scripture that informs why do you live where you live? Why do you, why do you live in New Orleans? It's not the easiest place to live. Well, I'm from here and all my family lives here. Wow. Not a horrible answer, just not a real good one. We ought to live where we live because we are aimed at a certain people. God's called us to a certain people. Why do you work where you work? See, sometimes you may say no to a job transfer or to taking a different job altogether because there's a sense in you that God has called me to these people, not just to this paycheck, but to these people, and I don't feel released from them. Why are you in the church that you're in? 
there should be a sense that this morning you are here by divine design. You're part of this church. You just didn't accidentally show up here. There's a sense that God speaks. See, when you extract all these things out, Christianity becomes boring. We're just all making random choices that don't mean anything. Well, I'll be in this church for a while, and then I'll go to be in that one over there, and I'll quit this job, and I'll move to that place, and we'll try that thing. None of that means a thing. Are all those things under the direction of God, by the design of God, because through your life, God is calling to the east and to the west and the north and the south to bring to himself out of the earth those that he's redeeming. You're playing a part. That part's getting defined. And here you want to get sobered. I am sending you to open their eyes. Paul, I am, I am sending you... Paul, I'm sending you to open their eyes. So this is that, that place where God is, you know, how does one's eyes get opened to the gospel? And we have a great picture of that in the book of Acts where Lydia, the Bible says that God opened her heart to believe. How does one's eyes get opened to the gospel? God does that, right? But then God turns around and says, Paul, I am sending you to open their eyes. This is that mystery of human agency in divine salvation. God is the one who saves. But yet, Paul must go. He is being sent. And look at the list of things he's, he's going to be sent. You're going to open their eyes, one, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Wow. Paul, what a task you're going to put your hands to. Right When we read up in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that we're to show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness. See, the Bible doesn't explain how does God call us out of darkness. It just does. We're called out of darkness, out of the realm of our understanding being darkened and our insights being excluded from the wisdom of God. And we live in this darkened realm of seeing life through the wrong set of lenses and being blind. And then we get called out. Well, how do we get called out? Well, according to this verse, Paul, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness. There's human agency here. He says, to open their eyes, secondly, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. See, when, the, when, when Jesus dies on the cross and finishes the work of the cross and sheds his blood, the, the, the work for forgiveness is through. Now the work for receiving that forgiveness has begun. To the east and the west and the north and the south. Paul, I'm sending you. I'm sending you. So that they might receive forgiveness in their lives. That, I mean, this is, this is a boatload of human agency right here. Third, that they may also receive a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul, I'm sending you so that they may receive a place among those who are sanctified by me. So that the work of grace can begin in their lives. So that sanctification can go on in their life. They can get set free from dominating sins. They can find themselves amongst the people of God, receive fellowship and grace, and be prepared for eternal glory with me. Paul, I'm sending you. I'm not doing this apart from you, Paul. I'm sending you to open their eyes so all these things can happen. And then we get to Paul. Now turn to, turn to the end of the race here for Paul. Romans 15. He's not actually quite at the end. He's probably got about 10 years of life left. But he's beginning to summarize some things in Romans 15. And he says, verse 17, In Christ Jesus, then, 
I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Uh, that's, a, that's a big mouthful. I'm not going to take it apart, but I think you see the components here. Whatever work that got accomplished, it ultimately was Christ who accomplished it. But it was accomplished through a human agency named Paul, who listened to God call him, obeyed as a servant, and became a witness. And this work that he's describing now took place through his life. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. From Jerusalem all the way around the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea, some 1,500 mile course. You want to look at Paul's racetrack. From Jerusalem, he gets in the starting block. He gets commissioned by God and he begins to run a race and fight through everything that would oppose him, would be difficult. And he fights for 1,500 miles. Now, I'm curious about this, because this is a sobering thought for me. And at the end of this race right here, he looks in the rearview mirror. And what does he see? Well, two things I want us to see. He sees churches and people. He sees churches, which I will call structures for disciple making. That's what churches are. They are, they are the structures. They are disciple making factories. Paul looks in the rearview mirror and he sees factory after factory after factory in Derb and Lystra and Iconium and Ephesus and Corinth and Philippi, Thessalonica and on and on and on and on. Paul looks in the rearview mirror and he says, how did I live my life? And he looks and he sees one place after another where disciples are being made. As he answered the Great Commission. First Corinthians chapter three, verse 10 says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder. I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. This is, a, this is a wonderful picture of the local church. There are aspects where each of us contribute work into the same thing. We all need to be careful about how we build, because we're building on the foundation, which is Christ. Where no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, can... can is everybody with me in that we are all in that verse? This is not just, you know, it's the Apostle Paul and, you know, a few carpenters that are in that work. But we are all contributing into this work. We are all workmen who our work is going to be tested. The work of making disciples is going to be tested. Every one of us are contributing into the work in unique ways that God has gifted us to do that. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, listen to what Paul says here. He says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, 
for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer to be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Okay, that's what we're not supposed to be. And God has put something in place to help us. He's put, he's put a leadership component of apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists. Then he's put mature people into the body of Christ who are functioning into one another's lives. And the effect of that is to keep us from being blown everywhere by crazy ideas. How to live your life, what to believe, what to go after, what's important, who's God, how do we relate to him, what's really sinful, what do we do with holiness? Does the Bible really say anything about that? I mean, the church right now, blown like it's on a skating rink, just whatever comes next, it blows people all over the course. But see, if the local church is functioning correctly, that's not supposed to happen. If leaders are leading and then equipping the saints, the saints to do the work of the ministry, and there's breakdowns in all these categories, that's not supposed to happen if we're working right. Verse 15, he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I'm a part. You're a part, right? I could come down, use you by name. Right, Karen? Understand you're a part, Craig? Nancy? You're a part. Everybody's a part. I'm a part. You're a part. Now the question is, is each part working and functioning correctly? Because, see, there's going to be that day when each part's work will be tested. And either the work will be burned up because it was not useful. Or the work will be rewarded because it fulfilled the call of our lives. And in all the difference, I mean, we're all very different in here. But each part plays a part. The same way in which our body parts are all different, but yet together the body is accomplishing things. And when I watch the basketball game tonight, I'm going to watch Chris Paul do things with his body that I'm thinking, that guy's from another planet. I mean, how do all the parts come together and do, how do you, everybody's got to be on board and doing that move. You know, it's like the foot can say, you know what, half court, that's good for me. I'm staying right here. I'm tired. You know, I get in the lane, people step on me. You know, if I get up in the air, then he lands on me. I'm just going to stay right here. Chris, you go on, man. Let me know how it turns out. You know, the body can't function that way. The body of Christ can't function that way. There ain't no slam dunking in the kingdom of God unless everybody's doing his part. What a boring game. Everybody's sitting on the bench. I'm going to tune in this afternoon and turn the game on. And all the hype. Nobody gets off the bench. TV just focuses right at the center court there. You watch the emblem on the floor. Referees are moving around. That's Christianity for some people. Can you imagine? Did any wonder why we are bored? Nobody wants to take a chance. Get in the game. Be a part. Every part playing its part. When Paul looks in the rearview mirror 
He not only sees these disciple-making factories, but he sees disciples. When, when the summation of Paul's life occurs, he's going to look back and he's going to see Timothy and Titus and Silas and Lydia and Epaphras and Luke and Archippus and on and on and on. People that Paul connected his life to, that he made such a difference in their life, playing the part that God called him to play in their life. He would look in the rear view for miles. There would be people lined up that he made a difference for the gospel in their lives. The gospel went from being contained in Paul to being duplicated in them. This advice to Timothy, and this is obviously a concern for Paul. Paul obviously believes in the duplication process of a disciple. He tells Timothy, again, at the end of his life, summarizing some points that are very important. Chapter 2, verse 1 of 2 Timothy says, You then, my child, we should be able to call some folks in our lives, our children spiritually. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, what I have given to you, duplicate. What you saw me do in investing in your life, Timothy, you turn around and do it. You duplicate the gospel and the ministry of the Spirit of God in others' lives, Timothy, over and over and over. These things teach to faithful men who then will turn around and they will invest it in others over and over and over again. This is normal Christianity. This is the call of being a disciple. Everyone is called to duplicate the life of God given to us into other people's lives. And it's a never-ending process. We're never done. Doing this. Now, my question, when we look in the rearview mirror of our lives, who do we see that are disciples as a result of our influence in their lives? At the end of my life, some good questions for you here. At the end of my life, will I have spiritual children? I look back. You know, those born into the kingdom, nurtured through spiritual childhood, prepared for responsible spiritual adulthood through my life's labors in them. Who are their names? Can you, can you think of some names right now for yourself as you look in the rearview mirror and you think, who, who, am I, who would I call my child like Paul did with Timothy? At the end of my life, will others be able to say, I entrusted eternal truths to them? Have I taken that which has been given to me and imparted it to others, planted revelation, truth, and understanding into others' lives. At the end of my life, will there be others who will effectively carry on the work as a result of my service and witness in their life? Have I duplicated a tenacity for the purpose to continue? Have I fought in people's lives for them to be passionate to see the kingdom of God furthered outside of their own life? At the end of my life, what discipleship structures will I have helped to build for those who will come after me? You know, sobering question. If, if I'm answering no to those questions, then the next question is, well, then what has my life been about? If I look in the rearview mirror, what, what am I going to discover? Am I going to discover disciples were made as a result of my life, for that was the primary calling 
of leaving me on planet Earth for a season? And if I don't find that, then I have to ask the question, I'm going to find something. What am I looking at in the rearview mirror of my life? What am I discovering? What did I fight for? What race did I run? What did I build? What will come after me? Let me tell you in closing, there are, there are some folks here in this church who it must bring great pleasure to the Lord to glance into the rearview mirrors of their lives. There's a particular man who, for me, is the guy who gives me the clearest picture of what a disciple maker looks like. I've known him since I was a teenager. He showed up at the school that I was at as a freshman in high school. He was right out of college. Took a job as a teacher and a coach. He could do neither. <laughs> But what's interesting is that wasn't what drove his life. What drove his life was disciple-making. He was a believer. And his passion was just to connect with people for the sake of the gospel. So he you know, do weird things. Went to the principal of the school, a little private school, not a religious school, private school. Said, hey, you know, would it be all right with you if I just start a little Bible study during lunchtime? You know, whoever wants to come can come. Oddly enough, principal says, Sure, go ahead. So in the gymnasium, he'd just pull up a little space there amongst the bleachers, and whoever wanted to come would come. I wanted to come for all the wrong reasons for some girl that was there. (laughs) But nonetheless, I came. And I heard something. And it reached into my heart. And it awakened something in my life. And he and I began to relate. And over the next few months... I'd come to that Bible study and I'd ask a lot of questions. and I started reading the Bible for the first time in my life. And several months later, he invited me to come to a church event that was happening one night, February of 1979, after many, many conversations. And he'd been reading the Bible for a few months now. Took me by the hand, brought me to a service. And in that service, my heart opened to the gospel and I was saved. And then he began to hold me by the hand and and walk through the early years of my walk with God. A few years later, we kind of parted and came back together again a few years later. And um, he began to help me mature. What it meant to pray. What it meant to read the Bible. What it meant to understand things in Scripture. What it meant to deal with issues in your own life. Begin to equip me. Encourage me to read books. Give me books. I'd read them and we'd get together and he'd, we'd talk on the phone. I mean, you read this chapter. What about this? I don't get that. Why is this? And we'd have all kinds of conversations about books, theology, and ideas. He began to encourage me. Maybe you should, maybe you should teach a Bible study. Tell you what, I won't teach next week. Why don't you teach? Scared to death doing anything like that. But having watched him walk in faith, having watched him reach out to people, having watched him care for people, you know, I've seen something. I've seen it been done. Well, I'll give it a try. 
And he would encourage and encourage and encourage for me to begin to do ministry, for me to begin to discover how would God want to use me? What kind of gifts would God have given me to be used in the kingdom of God? This, this man looks in the rearview mirror. And I'm grateful that he sees me in that mirror. But he sees many others because that's been the pattern of his life. And oddly enough, this morning, he's not here because he's leading the Alpha Retreat on the North Shore, making more disciples. It's Frank Loria, in case you don't know who I'm talking about. You know, I can look around this room, and there are other men. There's another guy who's not here this morning. His name is Ray Pratt. He's not here because he's off making disciples this morning at the Alpha Retreat as well. Ray would be a guy who, you know, I've watched Ray have several jobs throughout his life. You know, what is Ray? You know, you kind of sometimes you want to define people by what they do for a living. Well, Ray, as I've known him, he's had a number of jobs. That's not been the consistent thing in his life as I've known him. What's been consistent in his life is this guy is obsessed with making disciples. This man finds people. He gets involved with their lives. He loves on them. He shares the gospel with them. He invites them to things like Alpha or men's retreats or events where they can encounter God. He follows up with them afterwards. He goes, let's have lunch together. How did that affect you? He begins to converse and talk with them and build a relationship and care for them. He's making disciples. And then when they say yes to Christ, he takes them by the hand. And he helps them take their first step. And he helps them understand how to read and study and pray and relate to the people of God. And then... There are folks here this morning who Ray brought into this church who now are turning around and doing exactly what Ray did to others. And they have brought their family and their friends and others into alpha meetings and settings. See, that's discipleship. I'm staring at Bill over here and seeing a man who has invested his life in the church being a disciple-making factory that this church has received so much input from you. I have received so much input from him. Through the years, um, you know, the one thing that's common in Bill and becoming in Frank, becoming in Ray, is that no matter what else they're doing, that other thing is not the priority of their life. The kingdom of God is the priority of their life. I wonder sometimes how Bill has another life. These so many ways that, that he is willing to serve this church, the leaders in the church, to come alongside, to be a part of furthering disciple-making. That's what that is. See, when these men look in the rearview mirror of their lives, they see discipleship in the rearview mirror. There are names and people and things that have been built and when you set the fire to those things, they're not going to get consumed. They're going to be precious jewels. And I'm grateful that God is going to reward these men and the many others that are here that are like that. But, but this is a critical component of being a disciple. It is being a disciple maker. It is, a, it is the ability to look back over your life and to find people who have benefited from your involvement spiritually. Now listen, this does not happen casually. It does not happen without a great deal of intentionality and passion for it to occur. 
Bill Hall says, every Christian needs to take time to select a few people and to determine to spend time teaching them the basic fundamentals, such as Bible study, prayer, outreach, and various ministry skills. But we must be careful not only to teach the content, but also to model these truths in our lives. The example in outreach is vital. It serves as a catalyst. Each of us should covenant together with one, two, or three others to engage in weekly sessions for a fixed period of time. Something like that. Some form of intentionality where there are people with actual names that I, that I aim my life at. Paul, I'm sending you to these people. People that we are aimed at, that we feel responsible for, that we check with, that we help along, that we own in our own hearts, in our own lives, and we make room for them. Somebody should be on that list. Now listen, getting involved with people like this is a scary thing to do. Reaching out, lost, taking the hand of somebody, figuring out how to get involved with people in that arena. Well, listen, but see, this is where Christianity goes from boring to adventure. See, and this is the step so many don't want to take and they want to stay bored. Just want to stay bored. Well, you know, on the other side of boredom, there is this adventure. If you step out in faith, well, I don't know what I would say. I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I got with somebody, you know, I don't know, I'm not a star, I don't know what to answer question. Uh, let me tell you something. Nothing will make you a better learner than being thrust into having to have answers. See, I'm convinced that if I wasn't, hadn't been encouraged at an early age in my Christian walk to get out and do ministry, I'd, I'd, I'd have never done the amount of reading and study that I did. See, when you, you thrust yourself in a situation where there's a room full of eyeballs staring at you, uh, you're only going to let that happen one time. <laughs> and then the next time, you're actually going to study. <laughs> you're going to come up with information. You're going to study and find something out. You, know, you have a conversation with somebody you reach out to, and they ask you a bunch of stumping questions that you don't have answers for. Guess what you're going to do? You're either going to quit or you're going to go find answers. I'd start going to the bookstore and everything that looked like it had an answer in it, I'd buy that. You know, hard sayings of Jesus. Well, okay, give me that one next. And I just started reading and reading and reading because I needed to be able to give answers to people when you go out and try and do something. I think one of the dynamics, and Matt talked about this a few weeks ago, one of the dynamics of why learning is so poorly being done is because we don't intend on doing anything with it. See, if you have to lead an alpha table next week, you, you might be a little bit more inspired to figure out, ooh, what's the topic about, what would I say, what do I know about that? Well, you know, I don't know a lot about that. Is there, is there something I can read to help me know something about this? See, it's doing Christianity that makes learning Christianity even more vital. But listen, if, if, we, don't, if we don't duplicate our lives, the alternate to duplicating is stagnating. And your Christianity becomes stale and boring, smelly, you know, like a pond, toilet that hadn't been flushed. I don't know. I'm trying to give you a good image here. You know, flowing water is good, healthy water. Stagnant water, it's a problem. Christianity is supposed to be a flowing dynamic in our lives. Matt, go ahead and come up. Let me just give you this last thought here. These are good thoughts. 
John MacArthur talks about the fact that there isn't there isn't any other options. It's not like there's okay this morning we're gonna we're gonna separate the church into the non disciple making Christians and the disciple making Christians. So please consider strongly as to which group you'd like to be a part of from now on. There's no other group. There's no non disciple making Christians. When you are fruitful and you multiply your life. You prove to be my disciple. See, if there's no fruitfulness in your life, you ought to be sitting there right now going, hmm, am I, am I, really, a, am I really a Christian? I don't have any burden to talk to anybody on anything. Well, maybe I'm one of those 50,000, you know, 50,000 converts. Wow. Well, I might show up for Christianity, might not. Really? Wow. I'd, I'd want you to walk out of here uncomfortable wondering, do you really get converted? Christianity really get in your life as a troubling thing on the inside of your soul, always pushing you, pushing you where? To the east and the west and the north and the south, because there's a God inside of you who's calling out to the earth saying, give up, give up my children, give them to me, bring them to me. And I'm sending you to do that. John MacArthur says, discipling... It's a function that everyone must be involved in. It isn't optional. We're all to bring people to the knowledge of the Savior and go through the process of helping them mature. We're all to disciple whomever the Lord brings across our path. You'll probably have different kinds of relationships with the people you disciple, but discipleship is nothing more than building a friendship with a spiritual basis. And that's a good starting point. It's going to talk to you about your soul. Talk to you about how you see God. Talk to you about what you've been reading lately in the Word. Talk about something that I'm experiencing in God and share that with you. And we're going to begin to build a friendship that helps that happen. Here's, here's as simple as, as discipleship gets. John MacArthur says, you may feel that you don't know much. Find someone who knows less than you do and tell him what you know. <laughs> Find someone who knows more than you do and listen to him. Teach and be taught. Right now, I'm sharing this, and I'm not going to give you details on this because we're out of time, but for us to do this, some things need to change in the way in which we do things as a church. And, and we've had a number of meetings to talk to the covenant group leaders about this. What we cannot become is a church that has people who are spectators. Now, this, is, this is not, as much as I'm looking forward to the Hornets game, this is not the Hornets game. This is not... 15,000 people sitting in the stands and 10 of them playing on the floor. That's professional basketball. Christianity is everybody plays. Everybody's involved. And see, what can happen in Christianity is Christianity can become the pastors do their thing and the covenant group leaders do their thing and we just kind of come and experience some of that. And what we're asking the covenant group leaders is to begin to think differently about their groups to begin to give some of you responsibility for others in the group. So it's, it's not too far in the future that you may end up having your covenant group leader grab you as a couple and introduce you, probably know them already, to another couple in the group and say to them, you know, guys, I'm aware that there are some issues that you guys are struggling through right now. I would like to ask you to meet with this couple and go through this material together over the next three or four months. Because it's not just the covenant group leaders and the pastors who should be doing ministry and discipling people. 
And so you're going to begin to be asked to do some things differently, begin to be given some responsibilities in those areas, because the leadership is to equip the church so the church can do the work of ministry so the body can be built up. If we short-circuit that, it just doesn't work. There isn't another form of Christianity out there. This is the only one we've got available. So everyone must be disciple-makers. So I want you to think about who, who's in the rearview mirror of my life. Who perhaps should be? People that I should be thinking about investing in them. Maybe you need to ask your covenant group leader, you know, help me have some insights as well. How would I go about doing that with so-and-so? Or do you think that's a good idea for me and this person and this person maybe to spend some time together every couple of weeks and just talk through our lives and share and get some input into that? But everyone, everyone, everyone should be making disciples. Let's stand up together. Lord, I thank you that everyone here, every, everyone here this morning is in someone else's rearview mirror. Everyone here knows someone in their life who shared the gospel with them, who prayed for them, who related to them, who helped them understand life in view of the scriptures, who brought them into fellowship with other Christians and into the church so that they could grow and mature. Lord, everyone here has benefited from someone being a disciple maker. Lord, what we're asking you to do for us this morning is to duplicate that through us again and again and again. So that, Lord, when we come to that point where Paul was, I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. And we turn back and we look at our course from Iconium, or uh, Illyricum, all the way back to Jerusalem. We see names and faces and people and churches that our lives were a part of so that disciples would be made through us. Oh, Lord, keep us from the day when we look back on our lives and wood and hay and stubble is burning in the distance. God, birth in us, reclaim this ground of discipleship in our hearts, God, that we would be disciple makers. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.